0: Well, good morning to each of you. Our scripture text is found in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, and we are going to focus on verses 2 through 6. But we're going to set the context and set the context for this passage of scripture by thinking big. And to help us in that regard, Trisha is going to bring a diagram up on the screen behind me. Is it there? There it is. All right. If you have attended here for any length of time, you've seen this. How many of you remember this diagram? Okay. Many more of you should remember this diagram. I have shown it on at least two occasions, and it is exciting to say the least. And uh, what we have in this diagram is, is very simple. We have something that, I'll speak personally, something that helps me just, just grasp history and grasp reality. And I want you to notice uh, four things. First thing I want you to notice is the line right up at the top as I go over here to get out of everyone's way. The line right up at the top of the diagram, uh, present age, old creation. And so you see that line? Go way over to the left, top left. Where does it begin? Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve rebelled. As a result, God cursed all of creation And Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 8 that God actually subjected all creation to futility. And so we have what's called the old creation, the old heavens, the old earth. The Bible also refers to it as the present age. Now you keep going on that line, move to the right, to the right, to the right. Eventually it ends. Where does it end? Christ's second coming. And so there's one age, the present age. We also refer to it as the old creation, the old heavens, and the old earth. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Second thing I want you to notice is the line down at the bottom of the diagram. The age to come. If you want a verse where we read those two expressions, present age, age to come, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, off the top of my head, for example. The age to come refers to the new creation, new heavens. New earth. When did it begin? Look at the left, bottom left. It began at Christ's first coming. And moved to the right, it continues into eternity. So there are two ages. The Bible makes it clear there are two creations. There is firstly the old creation, the old heavens, the old earth, the present age. Beginning, obviously, back in Genesis one one. in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it will continue until Christ's second coming. And then there is the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation, the age to come. It began when? At Christ's first coming. His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, and His exaltation at the right hand of the Father inaugurated a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. And it will continue into eternity. Are you with me or against me? You're with me third thing I want you to notice is that there is an obvious what? Overlap. That's obvious, right? I'm stating the obvious. Blatantly obvious. There is an overlap between the present age and the age to come. There is an overlap between the old creation and the new creation. The old heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth. And these are the days in which we live. The Bible refers to this time period, this overlap as... The last days. The last days began at Christ's first coming. And the last days will end at Christ's second coming. And so we live in this period of overlap. And so it means that as Christians, those of us who are one with Christ, those of us who are believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, it means we are actually part of a new creation, but we're still living where? In the old creation. It means we're actually part of a new heavens and a new earth, but we're still living where? In the old heavens, the old earth. It means we're actually part of an age to come, but we're still living where? In the present age. And so right now, as Christians, this is an age of promise, and those promises have been partially fulfilled, and yet the full and final fulfillment of those promises awaits Christ's second coming. And so think of the Beatitudes. You might have to help me here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to us. Right now, present kingdom of grace, which when Christ returns will give way to a future kingdom of glory. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so you have theirs is the kingdom of heaven, starting the Beatitudes. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, ending the Beatitudes. And in between all of those promises, which are in the future of assurance, they shall, they shall, they shall. And so right now, I I, I experience. Partial fulfillment of those promises. I'm satisfied right now in Christ. I possess everything, creation, right now. I don't actually occupy it and enjoy it. I'm comforted now, but there's a full comfort coming. I'm called a son of God now, but the full manifestation of the sons of God awaits the future. And so here we are, stuck In this period of overlap. Stuck maybe isn't the right word. But you you get the idea. Here we are in the last days. And we possess the age to come. We possess all of the promises. They are ours in Christ. Paul tells in Ephesians chapter 1. We are already seated with Christ. In the heavenly places. And he has blessed us already. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You've already got every spiritual blessing you're ever going to get. The issue is what? We don't enjoy them yet in their fullness because we live in these days of tension in which the two creations actually overlap and we are awaiting Christ's second coming when that old creation will be done away with forever. And Christ's second return will inaugurate what? A resurrection from the dead, final judgment the renovation of the cosmos and new heavens and the new earth and the meek really will inherit the earth. And so here we are living in the present, these last days. And so Paul tells us, and what's this got to do with the book of Colossians, you're wondering, at least I hope you are. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, right at the outset, he tells us that if you have been raised with Christ, so if you are one with him, You've received Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's taken hold of you by the Holy Spirit. You're one with Him. If you have been raised with Christ, he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so Christ took a seat subsequent to His crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. He sat down, His exaltation, At the right hand of God. This is his present session, his present reign right now over these last days where he reigns from the right hand of the Father. And Paul's point is, if you have been raised with him, with Christ, Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, Christ who now reigns over the entire cosmos... And Christ who reigns over the church, even still in the old creation, and this Christ, his present session, for whom we we wait, his second return, which will bring to fruition the consummation of all things. That if you've been raised with him, if you're seated with him, if your life is hid with Christ in God, then for pity's sake, this is what Paul's saying, I'm putting a few little words in his mouth, live like it. Set your minds... On things above. Seek the things which are above. That's his exhortation. In other words, live out the new creation now in the midst of the old. Live out the age to come now in the midst of the present age. Make what you are already in Christ a present reality. Make your hope the mystery of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope that is coming. Make that the reality by which you live, you orient, you shape your life. May you be driven by biblical thinking, God-centered thinking, and an understanding of this great paradigm whereby we enter into the reality of history and what God is actually accomplishing and doing through his people. And then what he does, having given that exhortation at the start of Colossians chapter 3, okay, if you've been raised with Christ, Christ who's where? Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, seek the things that are above. What he does then, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3, right through to verse 6 of chapter 4, is he demonstrates in very practical, very nitty-gritty, very specific terms what that looks like. Okay, Paul, that's a wonderful idea, wonderful sentiment. I've memorized that. Oh yeah, set your mind on things above. Paul, shed some light here. What does that mean? What does that look like? What, is it, what does it look... You know, here I am, Glen Rose, Texas. What does it mean to live in this present age, still part of the old creation, but making the new creation of which I'm already a part, because I'm one with Christ who's already exalted. What does it mean to make that new creation a reality right now. We can sum it up in basically four things. The first is this, and this comes out in the rest of Colossians chapter 3 into chapter 4. It compels us, if we set our minds on things above, it compels us, and this is the point of verses 5 through 10 of chapter 3, it compels us to mortify sin. We'll get after it. That's his point. If we're part of a new creation, and if we're one with Christ, who's exalted at the right hand of God, and if we're waiting his return then we'll get serious with our sin. We'll put it to death. We'll identify idolatry. We'll overthrow sin's dominion in our lives. Secondly, what it will look like is this. It will make us part of a new community. And that's his point in verses 11 through 17 of chapter 3. That as we're part of this new creation, it's brought us into a new community, a new humanity, the church. And by virtue of our union with Christ, we're united to all who are in union with Christ. And so he tells us that we're to put on the love of Christ. And so love is to be the guiding principle in our relationships and how we interact with others. We're to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, in our minds. And so we're to seek, as he says elsewhere, to maintain, to preserve, to be eager, he tells us in Ephesians chapter 4. Eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, admonishing and encouraging and edifying one another. And, And he says, fourthly, that not only are we to focus on the love of Christ... Not only are we to focus on the peace of Christ, not only are we to focus on the word of Christ, but we're to focus on the name of Christ. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we're to function as part of the new humanity, the new creation. And that's how we're to function in this local expression of that new humanity, this local church. And he says, thirdly, here's the third thing it will manifest itself in. It will transform as we seek to live out the new creation in the midst of the old, it will transform our closest relationships. And he takes us down that road, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 3 into the first verse of chapter 4. And he speaks directly to six groups. He speaks to fathers. He speaks to husbands. He speaks to wives. He speaks to children. He speaks to masters, employers. He speaks to slaves, servants, employees. And Paul's basic point is this. Look, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Look, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Look, you're part of a new creation, a new humanity. This will affect your closest and most familiar relationships. How? They will be marked by selflessness. Husbands, it's not about you. Wives, it's not about you. Kids, it is not about you. Fathers, parents, surprise, it's not about you. You're a boss. It's not about you. You're doing your job 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. It's not about you. It's about what? How do I manifest the Lord Jesus Christ in my closest, most familiar callings and relationships? How do I demonstrate His Lordship? I do so by making these relationships and these roles in which God has placed me, I I see them in the light of Christ. And how I am to mirror the image and likeness of Christ in these relationships. That is the driving and governing principle. Then the fourth way. The fourth way in which we make this new creation. We live out the new creation in the midst of the old. It's this. It alters our approach to outsiders. That's the fourth. Let me rhyme them off again for you. It compels us to mortify sin. That's chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. It makes us part of a community. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. It transforms our closest relationships. Chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 1. And here's the fourth. It alters our approach to outsiders. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. That was the introduction. Did you get all that? Necessary. Extremely necessary. Because our problem is, when we come to these portions of the Bible, where Paul, in particular, starts to rhyme off a series of commands, it can all look rather daunting if ripped out of the context. We can easily fall prey to legalism if not understood in the context. And so these commands have a very specific context. Paul always gives these commands... As he's thinking large, he's giving these commands to govern our conduct, our conduct as we live out the gospel and what it means to be one with the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to our text for today. Follow along as I read it, follow closely, and listen carefully for two central commands. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Outsiders. Uh, Not my word. Paul's word. Perhaps someone here offended by it. If so, take it up with the Apostle Paul. Good luck with that. Outsiders. Outsiders. Uh, In Paul's thinking, Paul's view of things, There are only two groups of people. There are only two categories of people. Either you're over here and you are in Christ. Or you are over here and you are outside of Christ. Either you're over here and you're saved. Right? Sin's forgiven. Or you're over here and the judgment for your sins still hangs precariously over your head and you are condemned in God's sight. There are only two groups of people walking the face of the earth as far as Paul is concerned. He only thinks really in terms of these two categories. Either you're in or you're out. Either you're part of the covenant or you're outside of the covenant. Either you're in the church or you're outside of the church. Either you're part of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, or you're part of the old. Either you're part of the age to come or you're part of the present age. Either you are in Christ or you are outside of Christ. And so here he is addressing believers, Christians, those who are in Christ living in this epoch, this time period, and he's instructing us how to relate, and he has a specific audience in view. How do we relate to those who are on the outside looking in? And he gives two commands. This is not an exhaustive answer. He takes us, he take, he, he deals with this issue elsewhere. The Lord Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, for example, deals with this issue. But here he just focuses on two commands. The first has to do with persistent. Prayer, Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. A couple of things I want you to notice. Number one, how to pray. Two marks. Being watchful in it. There's mark number one, watchfulness. With thanksgiving, thankfulness. Mark number two. So there's the command. You are to continue steadfastly in prayer. How, how, how do we pray? What does this prayer look like? Watchfulness, because there's a danger, right? Thankfulness, that's the arena in which we pray. Thankfulness for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Then he addresses what we are to pray. So how to pray, watchfulness, thankfulness, what we are to pray. His answer here is an exhaustive. And let me remind you what we saw way back in chapter 1 where Paul gives us, furnishes for us a glorious prayer from his own example. He reminds us as he prays for these believers in the church of Colossae, and by extension as he prays for all believers, a prayer for us and a prayer that we should make our own, his primary request is that we be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, his priority when he prays is that we might actually think and live biblically. There's something we must pray each and every day. Here, he's not excluding that, but he has something much more specific in mind. It's interesting, it's fascinating. As you read Paul's epistles, in four of them, he urges his audience to pray on his behalf. In those four instances, as he urges believers to pray for him, specifically for him, he makes at least a dozen distinct requests. The vast majority of those requests have to do with the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what we have here. What are we to pray? Look at what he says in verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us. Pray for us. And he's thinking of the proclamation of the word. And he's thinking of two things in particular. Number one, that God may open to us a door. For the word, that's opportunity, right? To declare the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? Is Christ in you, the hope of glory, on account of which I am in prison. Now, here's the second thing that he wants them to pray for, thinking in terms of the proclamation of the word, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So we know how we are to pray, watchfulness and thankfulness, and we have a pretty good idea. Here's not an exclusive list. But it's what Paul is thinking of principally, primarily here, what we are to pray. We're to pray for the word of God to go forth. And we're to seek opportunity when it comes to outsiders. And we are to seek clarity in our proclamation of the mystery of Christ. The second command brings us into the realm of verses 5 and 6. Careful conduct. Careful conduct. Look at what he says. Conduct yourselves wisely, so I say careful conduct, or wise, prudent conduct, toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So here our conduct, and in particular, again, the emphasis is on our speech our words, and how we interact with those who are outside of Christ. Notice, firstly, what to speak. What are we to speak? That takes us back into verse 3, an open door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ. That's what we speak, the Word of God. Notice, secondly, when to speak. Conduct yourselves, verse 5, wisely toward outsiders Making the best use of the time. And so be vigilant. Be responsible. Be a good steward of your time. And notice thirdly how to speak. Verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious. And so we proclaim the truth in love. Seasoned with salt. Just a very apt word picture as he conveys this idea of gracious speech. So that you may know how. You ought to answer each person. So did you get the two commands? It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. The first, persistent prayer. The second, careful conduct. As Paul takes us down this road, he's dealt with us personally. Yes, we must deal with sin in our lives as we're being renewed in the image of God. He's dealt with us corporately and collectively as the church. Yes, the love of God, the name of God, the, the, the peace of Christ, these things are to be the gov- the, what governs our, our relationships, one with another, in the context of the church. He's dealt with this also in terms of how we, how we interact with people in our closest relationships, familial relationships, the workplace. And now he brings us into this area of those who are outside. Two commands. Persistent prayer, careful conduct. As we seek to proclaim the word of Christ. Now, have you got all that? Here's what I want to do with it. What I want to do with it is ask a very straightforward question. I've spent most of this past week just meditating on this. Okay, I get it, Paul. Persistent prayer, careful conduct. As we proclaim the mystery of Christ. What does that mean? mean, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago to a church in a far-off place called Colossae. What does this mean for me living in a place called Glen Rose, Texas? What does it mean to persist in prayer? What does it mean to exemplify wise conduct as I proclaim the word of Christ to outsiders? This is an extremely important question. It's an important question for me. It's an important question for you, each of us gathered here today. Important for a couple of different reasons. Uh, Let me emphasize one. The first is, I think it was 2006, George Barnett, he did did a survey. 2006, so eight years ago. I don't know what the statistic is today. I'm guessing it hasn't changed much. 2006, of those surveyed, 46% of Americans claimed to be born again. Okay, that's 2006. 46% of Americans claimed to be born again. In 2006, that that adds up to more than 130 million people in the United States of America. I don't know what 46% is today because I don't know how much the population has increased over the past eight years. Same survey. Less than 9% actually take the Bible seriously. All right? Did you get the statistics? That's telling. It's upsetting. Certainly telling. 46%, I'm born again. Uh, but only 9% actually take the Bible seriously. Now, we can only arrive at one simple conclusion. Do you know what the conclusion is? It's this, that despite all of our talk of evangelism, despite all of our efforts, despite all of our strategies, despite all of the money spent, and despite all of the zeal, The church is clearly proclaiming the wrong message. If 46% of Americans actually believe they're born again, and yet only 9% in any way take the Bible seriously, they have obviously what? Been sold a bill of goods. They have obviously what? Not heard the gospel. They have obviously accepted what? A false gospel. And so despite all the efforts, and despite all the enthusiasm, all the books, all the programs, all the movies, all this, all that, the church is quite clearly, for the most part, what? They've got the message wrong. They've got the message wrong. So this should concern us as believers. Part of the new creation, Still living in the old, dealing with outsiders, seeking to be persistent in prayer, seeking to conduct ourselves carefully as we proclaim the gospel. And as I've reflected on this past few days, what does that mean? What, is that, what will that look like here in Glen Rose, Texas? I'll come up with ten points. Don't gasp. Please don't gasp. Ten points, but I'm not going to spend much time on each. I'm going to rifle through them at a rapid speed. I will slow down in a place or two where it requires it. But ten points, as I I meditate on these verses, okay, I want to conduct myself wisely. I want my speech to be gracious. I want to convey the word of God. I want to proclaim the gospel truly to outsiders. Uh, Ten points that I must be clear on and I must always, always keep in view. First is this. Proclaim God's word. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate these ten from the book of Colossians. And I'm going to jump here, there, and everywhere. You try to keep, keep up if you can, but we're going to hear all ten of these from the book of Colossians. So number one is this. Proclaim God's word. Go back to chapter one. All the way back to chapter one. And look at the middle of verse five, what Paul says there. Of this you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. What is bearing fruit and growing? The word of truth. And so as Christ reigns right now at the right hand of God, Christ has inaugurated the new creation by virtue of his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He reigns now over his people. He is establishing his new creation. He is establishing his kingdom. He is furthering his church. We pray, your kingdom come. It comes right now. How does it come? It comes through the word of truth. Just as God spoke the old creation into existence, he speaks the new creation into existence. It is through the proclamation, and we must be convinced of this, Because we've surrendered it to pragmatism in our day. We must be convinced of this. That God creates through His Word. He creates faith through His Word. He causes people to be born again through His Word. And so we proclaim the word of Christ. We do so confidently knowing that Christ who reigns by his Holy Spirit has appointed the proclamation of his word as the means by which he accomplishes his will, furthering the new creation, furthering the kingdom, and furthering the church. Be convinced of it. We, we proclaim God's word. Second is this. Magnify God's power. Magnify God's power. Still in chapter 1, look at what Paul says in verses 16 and 17. He's speaking of Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Oh, be convinced as to who the Lord Jesus is. And be convinced of his power. He is the one by whom, for whom, and to whom all things were created. The creator of all things, above, below, visible, invisible. And he is the sustainer of all things. The power that created all things continues to uphold all things. I think I stated this some months ago. Christ, the eternal Word of God, is the principle of cohesion who holds the entire universe together. He is not some long-haired hippie, how he's often portrayed. He's not some effeminate man who was taken by surprise and didn't see the cross coming. He's not some do gooder who is here to hold people's hands. He is the mighty creator who became man, gave himself willingly at Calvary's cross to redeem his people. Oh, be clear on who he is. Magnify his power. Thirdly, glorify God's sovereignty. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Their faith, they're the ones who believe. Their love, they're the ones who love. So why does Paul thank God for their faith and their love? Because Paul firmly believed in the sovereignty of God. Paul firmly believed that any change in their lives, our lives, any evidence of salvation, any evidence of conversion, of moving from darkness to light, of turning from idolatry to God, faith itself is a creative work, a creative act of God, and a revelation of His grace in our lives. And so Paul can write, I thank we always thank God whenever we think of you. And whenever we think of your faith, because we know where that faith came from. It wasn't you just thinking positively. It wasn't you just sort of willing something. And we thank God whenever we think of your loved one for another. This isn't something you've done of your own strength. This is the evidence, the fruit of the work of the Spirit of God in you. The grace of God in you. The power of God in you. Oh, magnify and glorify God's sovereignty. Fourth is this. Challenge the mind. Challenge the mind. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. An empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We live in a day and age, even here in Glen Rose, Texas, we live in a day and age that when it comes to truth, just answering that question, what is true? Or what is, what is real? What do I believe? What, what is right? What is good? That people in our day fall into one of three categories. Some people worship their thinking, their mind. They think their mind is the end, the beginning, and the end of all knowledge. Some people worship their feelings. This is probably the predominant category in our day. Well, I feel this is right. I feel this is good. I feel this is the truth. Or a lot of people fall into this category. Well, I've experienced this. Therefore, ergo, it must be true. And in our day, what people have done is they have turned one of these three three things into an idol. They have either turned their thinking or their feeling or their experiencing into what? The rule of all truth and reality. As you engage people with the gospel, don't have any of it. Don't engage them on their own terms. Understand that this, 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 this category of thinking simply exemplifies the foolishness of man. We do not appeal to man's reason as the ultimate norm by which we determine all truth. We certainly don't appeal to his feeling, although you'd think we would by looking around at our society, even large segments of the church today, nor do we fall back on our experience. We believe in a God of revelation. Amen. We believe in a God who has spoken. We believe in a God who has given us truth, a deposit, a treasure, this word. This is what we proclaim. And we do not engage people where they're coming from when they have subscribed and they adhere to a different realm of authority appealing to something else. No, we do not we're not taken captive by philosophy or human thinking or elemental thinking but we declare the revelation of God. Number 5 confront number 4 challenge the, no that was number 4 challenge the mind. Number 5 confront the conscience. Look at chapter 1 verse 21. Confront the conscience. And you says Paul to the church of Colossae, you who once were alienated. Now look at this twofold description. And hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Confront the conscience. Hostile thoughts and evil deeds. Why? Because man in his sinful condition from birth, from conception, is alienated from God. Oh, we must be clear on it. When it comes to proclaiming the gospel, We must be clear on it when it comes to conducting ourselves wisely and our speech being seasoned with salt, knowing what to say and to address people. People will not seek the right remedy until they are fully convinced of what really ails them. That's the problem in the church today. We have innumerable people Chasing after a Jesus created in their own image because they have misdiagnosed their problem. He is here to save sinners, he is here to save those who are alienated completely alienated from God. And because of their alienation, they commit evil deeds and they are marked by hostile thoughts. Here's the problem. Here's the stumbling block, and here is what will get you into trouble with the natural man. Here it is. Are you ready for it? From the vilest child molester to the greatest philanthropist in our day, both stand condemned before God. Our problem is what? Our problem is we define sins by deeds, and evil deeds our sins. Our sins. But they're not the principal problem. Sin, in its essence, is not our deeds. It is our condition. And our condition is complete alienation from God. And because of our alienation from God, hostile thoughts, the natural man is hostile to God. Hostile to the will of God. Hostile to the word of God. And therefore, the natural man requires what? Friends, a band-aid won't do it. A simple little prayer, I ask Jesus into my heart, now I'm living however I please, won't do it. Attending church isn't going to help. What is required? A radical transformation from the power of God ushering in a new birth in which we become part of this new creation. We rest, we understand what we are in our essence before a holy God. And we rest completely, entirely, fully upon the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Oh, be convinced of it. How many people in the church today running after A Jesus, which is in actual fact an idol created by their own minds because they have never confronted the reality of their sin and their condition before a holy God and therefore have shaped Jesus into something that will meet their perceived or felt needs. How many? Countless people. Oh, in our proclamation and articulation of the gospel, confront the conscience. And be very clear, because the Bible is very clear on it. What exactly is man's condition before God? Number six, entice the heart. Oh, and that conscience is pricked by the Holy Spirit. Then you hear men and women crying out, What must I do to be saved? Not, oh, try Jesus on for a size. No. Oh, invite Jesus, you'll fill the hole in the bottom of your heart. None of this nonsense and drivel. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to flee the judgment that is coming? What must I do to escape the wrath of God? Oh, woo them then with Jesus. Entice them with the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It's beautiful. And you, he reminds the Colossian believers, who were dead in your trespasses. You were like spiritual corpses. In the uncircumcision of your heart. God made alive together with him there's fellowship the essence of communion with God relationally by virtue of our union with Christ looking secondly not only fellowship a second blessing having forgiven us all our trespasses how By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there's blessing number one, fellowship. There's blessing number two, forgiveness. And here's blessing number three, freedom. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Oh, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds when we understand what we are before God. And when we comprehend exactly what He has accomplished at Calvary's cross and this fellowship into which He brings us with the Lord God Almighty and His forgiveness by which He promises He will remember our sins no more, and we now breathe the air of freedom. Freedom from the penalty of the law. Freedom from the duty of the law. Freedom from the devil and his minions. Freedom from death. Freedom from sin. And most of all, freedom from the wrath of God. Because we have now been brought near through His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, when a sinner feels the weight of his sin, her sin, woo them with the Lord Jesus. And what He has accomplished at Calvary's cross. Number seven, feel the gospel. Feel the gospel. Number six was entice the heart through Christ. Number seven, feel the The gospel, as we conduct ourselves wisely with those who are outside. And look what Paul says again. Back in chapter 1, picking it up in verse 12. Feel the gospel, giving thanks to the Father. And so the arena of thankfulness. Thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Do you feel it? Christian, do you feel it daily? What we were, what we now are. The contrast, the stark contrast between darkness and light. A kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of light. Between death and life between animosity and hostility toward God, and now fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you feel what it means to be reconciled with God? That Christ has made peace through the blood of His cross. Does that well up in us, just in the depths of our hearts, thankfulness? Do we feel what it means to be adopted into the family of God? for our status to be completely changed, for every blessing and privilege of that family to be bestowed upon us. Oh, when we proclaim the gospel to others, when we give an account of the hope in us, which is Christ, the hope of glory. Oh, how we must feel it with every fiber of our being. Outsiders will not be won by a cold, cerebral apologetic, no matter how accurate we are. They will be won by transformed lives. They will be won by warm hearts. They will be won by poverty of spirit. They will be won by the transforming power of the gospel in the lives of others. Be convinced of it. Feel the gospel. Number eight, love the church. Chapter three, fresh in our minds because we were there just a couple of Sundays ago. Look at chapter three, verses 13 and 14. Bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so as outsiders look at the church, what do they see? Far too often they're looking in a mirror and they see their exact reflection. Far too often they're simply looking in the mirror and beholding their own reflection. They should look upon the church and they should see a gathering of people who beat to a different drum, whose governing principle is the love of Christ, who are consumed with Christ, consumed with the gospel, and whose relationships exemplify something which the natural man cannot explain. Oh, love the church. That is a principal means by which we conduct ourselves wisely toward outsiders. I get a little short. It hasn't happened recently. It's been a, actually, it's been a long time now. It's going back a few years. A little short with guys. A couple of guys, thinking back. Came to me, no time for the church. I'm an evangelist. Church, why would I waste my time in the church? I want to get out there. I want to give out tracts. I want to go door to door. I want to get the gospel out there. Amen. Amen, I would say. Amen. And may the Lord bless you in it. But never forget the church. It is in the context of the church and those transformed relationships in the church whereby the world sees something they cannot explain. And they see the living example in community of the transforming power of the gospel which then actually gives our words weight. You proclaim it. You give out that tract. I would encourage them in that. I would go with them in doing that. And yet challenge them in their erroneous, faulty thinking whereby they thought evangelism excluded the church. No, the church in living in community, I would argue, is actually the principal means of evangelism. When the transforming power of the gospel is given legs and hands and arms and feet. And people actually see it. They see the new creation being lived in the midst of the old. They see the new humanity in the midst of the old. They catch but a glimpse of the age to come in the midst of the present age. Number nine, quickly, confront the culture. Here's the ninth way in which we conduct ourselves wisely toward outsiders. Confront the culture. And look at what Paul says back in chapter 2, verse 4. I say this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So many today have been deluded with plausible arguments. I made some comments just a a little while back that might have seemed scandalous to some here as we reflect on this 46 percentage of Americans who claim to be born again. And yet only 9% actually believe uh, the Bible has any measure of authority? Only nine percent of them seeking to live out their lives in accordance with the Scriptures. Forty-six percent of Americans. How do we explain that? Because we've got the message wrong. Counter-cultural. Challenge the culture. Glen Rose, Texas. A definite culture. Texas, a very definite culture. Bible Belt. Christian culture, Christian heritage. Here's the danger. So many in our day have adopted and accepted culturally based Christian markers. I'll repeat that. It was a mouthful. So many in our day have adopted and accepted culturally based Christian markers. We must confront the culture by rejecting these culturally based Christian markers. What do I mean? I've asked Jesus into my heart. I avoid really bad sins. I vote Republican. I support the Second Amendment. Packing right now. I'm against abortion. I attend church. I invoke the name of Jesus. And I know a God thing when I see it. These are culturally defined markers of Christianity, and we are surrounded by people whose faith in the Lord Jesus extends no farther than that list. We must challenge the culture, reject the culture in which we find ourselves. We need to look no further than God's love, and what Christians today have done with God's love, they've corrupted it. They have made God's love sentimental by sacrificing truth. They have made God's love unconditional by sacrificing justice. And they have made God's love psychological by sacrificing change. So God loves me. I don't care what his truth is for my life. God loves me. He's never displeased with my sin. God loves me. He doesn't require me to change. He just accepts me the way I am. A completely unbiblical concept of God's love. And yet the prevailing wisdom in the culture in which we live. Oh, if we are going to conduct ourselves wisely. And if our speech is going to be seasoned with salt. And if we're going to say what we really need to say. Then we will confront the culture. And number ten, finally, require conversion. Require it. Conversion. Look at chapter one. Oh, we can go to many places in Colossians. We can go to many places in scripture. Just this one. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is praying that we be filled with the knowledge of God's will, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So here's the question. Is your number one desire in life to please God? That's a loaded question. Is your number one desire in life to please God? Come on. Is the yearning, the craving, despite our sinfulness, our fallenness, and our habitual sin, and our continued continued battle with sin, as we look back, is our greatest desire to please God? Is there an impulse within by which we do desire to know His will, and we do long to do it? If the answer to that question is no, you are still in an unconverted state. We must require conversion. We must require the new birth. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We become part of the new creation, the new humanity, part of the church. And we receive Jesus as Savior. Yes, we do. But we also receive the one who is now seated at the right hand of God. And we submit ourselves to his lordship. And our desire becomes his desires. Our longings, his longings. And we long for, we, we desire and we pray that we might be filled with this knowledge of his will as revealed in his word. That we might actually walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. Whereby we will actually please him. Require it. Conversion. Conversion regeneration, something we can't bring about, something you can't bring about, but something that the spirit of power brings about. When a man, when a woman is born again, moved from darkness to light, from death to life, whereby they are brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that was a lot of ground, friends. A lot of ground. That was a challenge to me. I've, I've been challenging myself this past week. As I work through that list of ten, and I trust that might be a challenge for some of us gathered here today, I certainly pray it's even a challenge for any who might be here who are actually outsiders. I've been speaking to believers for the most part, because that's who Paul is speaking to here. And wrestling and struggling with this question of how do we relate to outsiders, because that's the road Paul points us down here. But it does beg the question for anyone here right now who is an out, cider what to derive what to take what to glean from everything you have heard this day here it is wonderfully summed up in first peter 3 18 christ suffered once for sins christ suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god that's it my friend if you're on the outside looking in that is it Christ Jesus died. He suffered once for sins. Sin imputed to him upon Calvary's cross. The righteous, him for the unrighteous. The godly, him for the ungodly. The holy for the unholy. He who is perfect in the Father's sight on behalf of those who are blemished and riddled with sin. Why? that he might bring us to God. And the king, he who is seated at the right hand of God, your king, whether you acknowledge it or not, he commands you now to bow the knee. It is a commandment. He commands you to bow the knee. He commands you to kiss the signet ring, so to speak, upon his hand. He commands you to turn from your sin and your idolatry and acknowledge your true Lord, Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he commands you to repent of your sin. He commands you to believe upon him as the only hope for salvation for sinners. Hear those words again from 1 Peter 3.18. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, your power for salvation to everyone who believes. And so, dependent upon your grace, dependent upon your spirit, we pray that you be well pleased to magnify your power this day among us, applying your word to each and every heart. We pray that you be well pleased to further your kingdom among us by bringing into subjection sinners in our very midst as they have heard the words of the gospel as they have heard the word of truth, as they have heard the mystery, to have Christ in us, the hope of glory, that by your spirit you might now, by your power, perform a tremendous miracle in their hearts, showing them the truth of the gospel, showing them the glory of Christ, and showing them that there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. And we beseech you, in the name of Christ. Amen.